very much. And I trust the mic is on. Are we good? Yes. All right. Good morning to you, Trinity. It is great to be back. Uh, it's been three years since we were here the last time, so there will be obviously people here this morning who've come, become part of the church since then. You've never met us. You don't know who in the world we are, where in the world we live and work. So let me just begin this morning by introducing a little bit about ourselves. And so we'll get a picture up there. Um, greetings to Trinity. You have been part of our support network for 33 years, which is a good long time. Uh, and uh, it has really been a wonderful thing to know that this church has been praying for us, giving to us, investing in our ministry for so many years. Uh, I am Ted Rubish, and uh, my wife's name is Renate. If we can get the next picture, uh, there we are on the, uh, with a lovely backdrop from the island of Sri Lanka, which is where we have worked and lived for many, many years. If we can just get the map there, we'll show you where that is. For those of you that aren't familiar with the geography, Sri Lanka is the little teardrop-shaped island off the tip of India, about the size of West Virginia, with about 24 million people packed into it. And so we're a pretty crowded place. Um, I'm no stranger to Sri Lanka because my parents were missionaries to Sri Lanka. They went there in 1954, and um, uh, uh, so I grew up in Sri Lanka. I have actually lived in Sri Lanka longer than most Sri Lankans have. I've been there as a missionary with my wife for 30, for 30 years, but before that I was a single missionary there for 10 years, and so I've, uh, this year, in fact, I'm celebrating my 40th year of active ministry as a missionary overseas, many of those years supported by this church. Now, uh, another part of that story is that as I was growing up in Sri Lanka, Trinity was a part of the support network of my parents. In fact, I just learned today that when Trinity started in 1953, my parents were the first missionaries that this, this church supported. And so Trinity has been part of the Rubish Missionary Network for uh, 65 plus years. That's well over half a century. And here is the tidbit that I just learned in between the services. When my parents came and visited this church in 1953 and, and began to get support, my mother was pregnant. And I was born in March 1954. So that means that I was in this church before I was born. I never knew that before, but today, yeah. so so I outdate, I think, virtually everyone here this morning in terms of relationship to Trinity. None of you can say you were here before you were born. I can actually say that, and uh, and so it's been, it's been a long, wonderful relationship. And uh, my folks are with the Lord, but we are still serving the Lord in Sri Lanka, and Trinity has been a part of our support for those many, many years. Wonderful to be back to let you know what God's been doing in our lives. Uh, the next slide will show you where we are on the island of Sri Lanka. We live in the city of Kandy, which is kind of the... Uh, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country, and Kandy is the home of the major temples. The major clergy groups are all based in, in the city of Kandy. So we have lived and worked really in a way in the, in the spiritual heart of the nation. Spiritual in many different senses of the word. And so we are right there. The major temples are just a, just a, a mile or so from our little church and the place where we live. And so that has been our home for these, these many years. Uh, if we can get the next picture, there we go. 1989 is when the Trinity came on board, began supporting us uh, 30 years ago. And uh, you can tell we've hardly changed a bit since those days. 
uh, just a little grayer, a little bit more around the middle maybe, but we're still, uh, we're still alive and kicking, still as good looking as ever. And uh, you've been a part of that for all these years. Um, our, our major handle in Sri Lanka is to invest our lives and our skills in leadership development. We are among the very, very few foreign missionaries who are allowed, who still have permission to work as missionaries in Sri Lanka. In fact, I am still using my dad's old visa, which was given in 1955. So this has been going on for many years. I was sort of grandfathered in. And we are among the very few foreigners who are actually still working there as missionaries. So how do we invest our lives in a place where uh, we can't be everywhere at once? I don't have the gift of omnipresence yet. And so we figured from the very beginning, uh, our investment should be in the area of uh, developing leadership. Our mantra is invest in leaders, you impact the nation. And so through the students that we have, who over the years have become pastors, they've become leaders of the churches, we are able to impact the nation as we invest in the training of leadership who carry on the work after all the missionaries are gone. And so I, I see that every time I, I teach at Colombo Theological Seminary, at Lunka Bible College, every time we have a faculty meeting with Lunka Bible College, where I've been teaching for 30 years, uh, when we sit together in a faculty meeting, every single faculty member, including the principal, have been my former students. And what a privilege it is for a teacher to be able to see his students carry on, to take the legacy and carry it on to the next generation and become the leaders of the next generation. I'm 65 now, and so we're beginning to look at, you know, what does retirement look down the road? One of the concerns there is to make sure that that legacy, the, 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 the teaching and the training of God's word goes on to the next generation. Paul says that to Timothy, doesn't he? The things that you learned from me, give them to faithful men who will pass them on to the next generation. And that's what we have been doing on the island of Sri Lanka for these many, many, many years. Uh, if you don't live in a total information vacuum, you'll know that the Christian church in Sri Lanka has gone through some real storms and crises, not just recently, for a number of years, persecution, the hands of the Buddhist majority sometimes has been there, but you will know that on Easter Sunday, this last Easter Sunday, are you all familiar with the news? Uh, three Sri Lankan churches were uh, attacked by uh, radical Islamic extremists, uh, suicide bombers who walked into these three churches in the middle of their Easter Sunday morning services and detonated their 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 explosives. And almost 300 people were killed, most of them believers, at their Easter morning services. And so this was a horrific, uh, uh, horrific news. We were not actually in Sri Lanka. Uh, my wife is from, from Germany, Renate is from Germany, and we happened to be in Germany visiting her family on the way to the States when we picked up the news on Easter morning of this horrendous attack. And so the church in Sri Lanka has gone through some very, very difficult times in recent weeks, and it was on the news. And yet, as, we, as, uh, as the church has, has given this to the Lord, we have seen God do some amazing things through the church at this critical time. Uh, and interestingly enough, particularly among the Muslim community from which the attack came. Muslims are a minority in Sri Lanka. The Buddhist majority is there. Uh, but the attack came from a, an extremist fringe of the, of the Muslim community in Sri Lanka against the Christian church. And uh, as a result of this attack, uh, Sri Lanka's economy, which is very dependent on tourism, that, that dried up overnight. Uh, instantly, hotels were empty uh, because th- at the same time, three hotels were also attacked. And, uh, uh, and so the, the, the tourist side of the economy just dried up overnight. And so there has been a huge backlash now in the last couple of months against the Muslim community in Sri Lanka 
who are largely innocent of anything. This was just a radical extreme fringe. And so many, many uh, uh, Muslim homes, shops, and mosques have been attacked and burned by, by, uh, by mobs. And, uh, and, and many uh, 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 Muslim businessmen and doctors have been the focus of uh, hate attacks against them uh, by the majority community in Sri Lanka. In the middle of this, the, the, the thing is that God has used the Christian church that was attacked by the Muslims to reach out to the Muslim community in ways that have, we have never, could never have dreamed or expected. The, the larger Muslim community is deeply ashamed, deeply embarrassed of what happened on Easter Sunday. And in the city of Kandy, where we live and work, uh, there were a number of key Muslim leaders that came to the pastor of our little church, just at the heart of the city of Kandy, and said, we want to meet with you. We want to apologize on behalf of the Muslim community for what happened. We're ashamed. We're embarrassed. We want to meet to reconcile with the Christian community. And so our pastor in our little church in Kandy organized a, a meeting of reconciliation. And I wish I had the picture to show you here. Uh, there, there's a picture of our little church. And in the front row, there are 10 of the top Muslim imams from Kandy who are standing there in the front row of our church. And then there were business, about 10 or 15 Muslim businessmen who joined the meeting, and they were there in our church for a meeting of reconciliation. If you had, if you had told me a month before Easter that such a thing would happen, I would have said there's no script possible for that. And yet the Lord has taken the ashes and the wounding and the tragedy that has been inflicted on the Christian church and has given us as, the, as, the, as God's people an, a most amazing door of opportunity to minister to the Muslim community, which is one of the most insular, isolated, difficult to penetrate groups in, in the whole of Sri Lanka. God has given the church a chance to minister to this particular group who are more open to the Christians now because of the embarrassment and the shame of this attack, more open to the gospel than they've ever been before. So God is just, you know, he, he has, God has a spiritual gift of taking a worst possible situation and redeeming it and making something good come out of it. But nevertheless, the fact is that the church has been through a great tragedy, a great storm in the last number of weeks. And that brings me then to our message for this morning. I, I, there's a there's a, a little outline in your in your church brochure. If you're somebody who likes to take notes, you'll see that I've I've entitled our sermon this morning "Anchors in the Storm, Hanging on When You're Tossed in the Tempest." Hanging on when you're tossed in the tempest. I wonder how many of you this morning have ever actually experienced a real humdinger of a storm. I guess you don't get tornadoes here. You probably get hailstones, and you get pretty uh, quite a lot of wind, I would suppose. But I wonder whether you've ever ever really experienced you know a, a real you know pizzazzy storm. If you want to get that, you come to Sri Lanka in the monsoon season. There are times when I've thought I was on the top of Mount Sinai in a thunder and lightning storm with the rain coming down in just buckets. And, and it, it's, it's almost like you're in the presence of God sometimes in a storm like this. We really get storms in Sri Lanka during the monsoon season. But in another way, Sri Lanka in the last month has gone through another even worse kind of a storm. And of course, we know that that, that is part of the world that we live in. We live in stormy times, don't we? Uh, we live in a stormy world. And sometimes when you wake up in the morning and you read the news and you see the headlines, it seems sometimes like it gets stormier all the time. Isn't that true? You wake up and you just, you know, I don't even want to know because it's just, just all bad news out there. And, and the fact is that it seems to be getting stormier at, with every year that passes by. And that worries me as I come back from Sri Lanka to the States and visit churches like this. It worries me when I look around at the church 
And, and I hear the kind of teaching that many Christians live off of, uh, often from the television pulpits of Christian media, and we hear this constant stream of exhortations from our evangelical megastars that, that if you just live by faith, you just think positive thoughts, God will bless you with a prosperous, pain-free life. Uh, and so, brother and sister, you just name it and claim it by faith, and it'll be yours All of that tailor-made for disappointment and a looming crisis of faith when the crunch inevitably comes. And it will come. We, we, We have all been through storms. Let's be honest. Or if we haven't, we will be. Storms are a part of being part of this broken world. And we as Christians need to learn how to handle the storms of life. The church in Sri Lanka has had to learn over the last 10 or 15 years how to handle the storms of persecution. And we're not at the end of it yet, as we found out on Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. We have to learn as Christians how to handle the storms of life. And I often think there are two dangers involved with this. One is that so often we are underprepared as Christians. You know, we've, we've had all this prosperity teaching, and, and, and we don't expect storms in our life. The fact is that many Christians are unprepared for the storms of life. We haven't learned as followers of Christ that we aren't exempt from the storms. And so the weather turns sour, uh, and, it, and uh, it turns out that our faith isn't built for bad weather. Our faith doesn't have endurance built into its DNA. And so when the winds begin to crank up, our faith begins to crack up. And we get disillusioned, and we get angry with God, and we get bitter, and we lose our confidence in him when the storms roll in because we haven't learned how to handle the storms of life. We've been through that in Sri Lanka for many years. The other side of the problem, not only that sometimes we're underprepared, sometimes the the other side of the coin is that we're overconfident in the storms. And this is the problem of overfamiliarity. Well, you know, been there, done that, you know, we know about that. We're going to look at the story today of the disciples in the, in the Sea of Galilee in the storm. Peter walking in the, uh, uh, you know, Peter walking on the water. But don't forget that Peter sank in familiar waters. He wasn't just a beginner. Peter knew ships. He knew storms. He had been sailing the Sea of Galilee probably since he was a kid. And he sank in familiar waters. Noah was no youngster when he got drunk. David wasn't just a university student when he fell into adultery. Uh, Peter was not an inexperienced beginner. Doesn't it say somewhere in Proverbs, Let him who standeth take heed, lest he, lest he fall. Let him who standeth take heed, lest he fall. And so let's not be too overconfident. We've got this down to a science. We've got it figured out. Psalm 148, verse 8, says this. This is an interesting verse. I've got it up here on the screen for you. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, listen to this, stormy wind fulfilling thy word. Did you get that? Stormy wind fulfilling thy word. This morning I want to talk to you about a storm fulfilling his word. We've all been through them. Maybe some of you this morning are going through your own personal storm this morning. Matthew 14 is the story. So you can, you can turn in your cell phones to Matthew 14, okay? 
That's how you say it these days, right? It's the story of how Jesus sends his little band of disciples into a storm and how Jesus helps them through the storm. Let me read for you from Matthew chapter 14. We're going to take it from verse 20 because the context of the story is the feeding of the 5,000, one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did. So we're just wrapping up that story. In verse 20 it says, They all ate and were satisfied They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate beside the women and the children. So obviously there were more than 5,000. 5,000 men plus their wives and children. You're probably looking at 10 to 15,000 people. One of the greatest miracles of Jesus. And verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray when it was evening, and he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But, don't you love the buts in scripture? But, seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Now in this story, very familiar to us, we've probably heard it from our Sunday school days, uh, we, we, we see how Jesus sends his disciples into a storm and helps them through it. And what I find as I read this story, is I find five encouragements, five anchors for you to hang on to when when you find yourself in the middle of a storm. Five anchors that the church in Sri Lanka needs to hang on to as they go through this very, very stormy period in, in, their, in their lives. So, five anchors to hang, to hang on to when you come into the storm. If you've got it there in your notes, you can take notes on Here's anchor number one. Anchor number one, remember, when you're in the storm, he brought me here. He brought me here. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. He brought me here. Now, the background, as I said, was the feeding of the 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 plus. And, and 
everyone was pretty excited. This was the, one of the biggest miracles that Jesus had ever done. And so people were excited. The, the account of the, of the miracle in John 6 tells us that the people actually thought that Jesus was now bringing the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. The Lord's prayer was going to be answered. Uh, thy, you know, thy kingdom come on earth. They thought that this was happening right now. Jesus was the Messiah. The kingdom was going to come. And it was beginning with the bakery and the fish shop. Free bread, free fish, free food. And this is just going to be the golden age. Everybody's getting excited. We know that the disciples also were getting excited about this. We know that they were arguing with each other. Who's going to get the chief post, you know, in the government of the kingdom? And, uh, you know, Peter's lining himself up for the foreign ministry. And, and Thomas, you know, he wants to take the ministry of finance. And they're arguing about, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus begins to get wind of this. And so his response is, guys, pack up and move out. Just move out. Get out of here. And, and so he sends his disciples uh, down to the Sea of Galilee and says, you go to Bethsaida on the other side of the Galilee and I'll meet you over there. And he sends them out into a storm. Now, my question is, uh, did Jesus know that a storm would come? I think he did. I, you know, he's up there above the heights. He knows the weather patterns. Uh, he knows the area. I think it's very likely that he knew the storm was coming. Did he tell them that the storm was coming? No, I don't see that he did. Did he love them? Of course Jesus loved his disciples. You mean to tell me that Jesus, who loved his disciples, deliberately sent them into a storm? That's what it looks like to me. You see, we have a common misunderstanding as Christians today that when you are in the will of God, everything is just going to be smooth sailing. Everything's going to be dandy. There are, you're going to have a trouble-free life as long as you're smack in the, in the center of the will of God. That is a misunderstanding. We need to remember the principle. When the storms come and you are in the will of God, remember anchor number one, he brought me here. He brought me here. It's interesting in the Bible that often there are two kinds of storms that come into the, believe, into the life of believers. Sometimes there are storms of correction. You're going the wrong direction. You're out of the will of God. And so God has to bring a storm of correction, course correction into your life. Classic story of that, story of Jonah. Okay, Jonah's running away from God. He's, he's going to Tarshish. He's supposed to be going to Nineveh. He's out of the will of God. God has to bring a storm of correction into his life to get him back on track. Sometimes God has to do that for us. He, he brings a storm of correction into our lives. But there are also times when God brings storms of perfection, not storms of correction, storms of perfection into our lives. Here in this story, the disciples were right where they were supposed to be. They were obedient to the instructions of Jesus, and the storm came. You see, God's purpose for us here on earth is not necessarily to make us happy, but to make us holy. And sometimes to do that, God sends storms of perfection into our lives to develop his character into our lives, to develop our faith, and to develop our, our holiness. And here the disciples were obedient to Christ, and the storm came. Never be fooled that obedience to God is going to be simply one constant joyride. That is not true. Who would know better than Jesus himself? The greatest act of obedience was Jesus going to the cross. 
in John uh, 13, it says, Jesus, knowing he had been sent by the Father, he knew he was smacked right in the middle of God's will, knowing he had been sent by the Father, he said, I have finished the work you have given me to do. And yet it was the hardest thing Jesus had ever done. Obedience to God did not mean sailing into a peaceful, a peaceful existence. It meant sailing into the storm of Calvary for Jesus. Why did Jesus send his disciples into this storm? Well, I believe, as I look at the story, I, I believe that, that it was to teach them that he is the Lord of the storms as well as the Lord of the blessings. Do we ever need to learn that? They did. They, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, the 10,000 plus. It was a high point uh, in his ministry, you know, and it's great to trust God when things are really going well. It's another thing to learn to trust him when the storms blow in, isn't it? It's, it's, it's one thing to trust him for the loaves and the fishes. It's another thing to trust him for the wind and the waves. And we need to learn both ends of that. And, and it's interesting to me, when you look at the book of Acts, the early part of the book of Acts, Jesus has now gone to heaven. The Holy Spirit has been given at Pentecost and filled the disciples for their ministry of, of gospel evangelism. Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up to preach, filled with the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people are saved. Preaches one simple sermon, 3,000 people saved. Acts chapter 4, he preaches again. This time, 5,000 people are saved. Are we on a roll, folks? 5,000? Does that number, number strike a bell? Do you think Peter's thinking, I remember when Jesus did this for 5,000 men. 5,000 people are saved in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5, the storm rolls in. Persecution begins. And we need to learn how to trust him for the loaves of the fishes, but we also need to learn how to trust him for the wind and the waves. Somebody once said, what God reveals in the sunshine, don't doubt in the shadows. What God reveals in the sunshine, don't doubt in the shadows. You know, we have served together as a couple in Sri Lanka for 30 plus years. You had my single years of ministry, 40 years. 40 years is kind of a biblical number. God seems to often do things in 40-year chunks. And so for me, it's significant that this year is the 40th year of my active ministry as a missionary in Sri Lanka. And, and through those many years, we have had some marvelous times of blessing. We have also gone through some very, very difficult seasons. We had civil war for most of the years. Uh, our 30 years together as family, civil war raging on the island. We have been through tsunamis. We have been through perse- times of persecution. Um, and, of course, the bomb blasts on Easter Sunday were there as well. And there have been many times uh, when, uh, in spite of the blessings, we have been ready to pack our bags. It, it's been tough at certain seasons of time. And, I, you know, we have to renew our, our, our missionary visa every year. It's an annual ritual we've got to go through every year i don't know whether the government's going to say you can stay now let me open confession here there have been times i would have been just as happy for the sri lankan government to deny our visa then we would have a good spiritual reason to leave we could come home, you know, and, and, and do something else. There have been times I've looked at those silver airliners taking off from Colombo Airport and think, gosh, I wish I was on one of those. I wish I was buckling my seatbelt and leaving. Uh, and, and not just in, in times of persecution. One of, the, one of the worst times that we went through was when we returned back to Sri Lanka without any kids for the first time. We left our kids for university here. Our youngest son was in boarding school. And we came back to Sri Lanka, and our home was empty of kids. We were empty nesters. For us, family was kind of everything. And, and we came back to this home, 
And there were times, quite frankly, when Renata and I looked at each other and we said, do we really want to be here without our family, without our kids? And we really struggled. We struggled with depression sometimes. And, and at times like that, whatever kind of storm there is, you have to know this is where God has called me. And if he has called me here, here I stay and I don't run until he makes it very clear it's time for me to leave. And so when you are in the will of God and the storms roll in, remember he brought me here. And if he brought me here, here I stay. He will give me the grace that I need to continue to worship and to, to minister to, for him effectively in those, seasons, in those seasons of doubt. God called me here, here I stay. Anchor number one, he brought me here. Here's anchor number two, and I think this will encourage you. He is praying for me. He's praying for me. Verse 23, after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there, he was there alone. The, the account of the story in Mark 14 says, Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars. Remember, he's up there on the mountain, he's praying, and he sees them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And so here is Jesus up on the mountain. He can see the disciples and he's praying. He's praying for them. When you're going through a storm, remember that God has brought you into, remember Jesus is praying for you. Here's the situation. The disciples are out there. The the, the winds are howling. The waves are getting higher. The disciples are getting seasick and miserable. They're probably getting rid of the bread and the fish that they just ate, throwing that overboard from who knows where. And, and little realizing in the middle of all that, that Jesus is up there in the mountain and he's praying for them. That encourages me this morning. Peter, later on in, in, the, in the, his first epistle, he writes these words, 1 Peter 3.12, if we can have it up there. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are attentive unto their cry. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Isn't it great to know that God is listening to your cries, and he's praying for you? Sometimes in the middle of a storm, Satan will come to you, and he will whisper his little lies in your ear. And he will say, you know, who cares for you? You've got a burden there. You're going through a storm that nobody can, can see. There is a deep pain inside you that nobody knows about. No, that's a lie of Satan. I know that when I go through the storm, Jesus is up there in the throne of God, his Father, and he's praying for us while he's in the storm. I love the verse that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he sailed into his storm at, at, at Calvary, and he prays this to his father. He says, I pray not for the world. I pray for those whom you have given to me out of this world. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't pray for the world? He prays for us in the middle of the storm. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because, listen to this, because he always lives to intercede for them. That encourage you this morning as you go through a storm? God is, Jesus is there before the throne and he's praying for you and he's asking his father to bring the resources of his grace to you in the middle of the storm. He brought me here, anchor number one. Anchor number two, he's praying for me. Anchor number three, he will come to me. 
He will come to me, verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. Here's the context. Peter and his buddies, they're getting wet. They're getting damp. They're getting cold. Worse, their faith is getting wet. Their faith is getting cold. They're beginning to get on that little boat bobbing around. They're beginning to get that sinking feeling, literally. And, and, and the unspoken question on all of their lips is, and where is he anyway? He was with us in you know previous, where is he now? Why has he gone AWOL? And there will be many times when we go through the storm that we will feel like God has abandoned us. Have you ever felt like that? Let's be honest with each other. There are times we feel that God has forgotten us in the storm. And, and we echo David's prayer, prayed in Psalm 22, 1, that Jesus himself prayed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you in the storm? And we will feel like that. But Mark's account of the story in, in Mark 6 says this, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at the fourth hour of the night, he came to them. He came to them. He will come to me. Notice in this part of the story, three very interesting little observations. Notice, first of all, that Jesus comes to them. And Get this, please. This is profound. Jesus comes to them on the very thing that they fear the most. So simple, but so profound. He walks to them on the ways that they fear the most. There are some of you this morning who are going through a storm right now. And I would ask you, what are, what are the waves in your life this morning? And I'm praying that those waves, the very waves that you fear the most this morning, will be the very path that brings Jesus closer to you. That's what we're praying for the church in Sri Lanka. As the church has gone through this terrible time, my prayer is that the waves that they fear will be the very avenue by which Jesus is able to come to them and make his presence felt in their lives. That's my prayer for the church in Sri Lanka, my prayer for you this morning. Notice also, secondly, that Jesus comes to them, when? At the darkest hour of the night. We're told that he comes in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Notice that Jesus doesn't just stay there on the mountain praying. He comes to them in the darkest hour of the night. I don't know about you, but I tend to often wake up in the morning at about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And that is the time that I struggle the most. It's, it's my troublesome hour of the day when I can't get to sleep. And what am I doing at 4 o'clock? I'm thinking about all the problems, all the headaches that are there, all the things that I fear. It's kind of like the waves tend for me to build up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I don't know whether you experience that or not, but I think many people find that those early morning hours when it's dark, it just there's a spiritual battle that's going on in those early hours. I don't know what it is for you, but what I know from this story is that Jesus comes to his disciples in the darkest hour of the night. And he's there. I think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the furnace. And he looks through the peephole to see these guys frying up. And he sees that they're not burning. There's three guys. And there's a fourth. The angel of the Lord comes to them in the fiery furnace. He will come to me. 
I think of Paul in the storm in Acts 27. He's in a two-week storm. And there in the middle of all that raging sea, the angel of the Lord appears to Paul in the storm. I think of the story of Jacob returning to Canaan. He's fearful of meeting his murderous elder brother. And that night as he wrestles with his fear, the angel of the Lord comes to him to encourage him. I think of Joshua who is there before the the city of Jericho the day before the big battle. And he's wondering how in the world do we begin to take this city? And the angel of the Lord comes to him in the middle of that crisis. And, uh, And that stormy night on the Sea of Galilee... Jesus came to them in the darkest hour of the night. Notice also that in the process, the disciples mistook Jesus, that they thought he was a ghost when he came to them. And it's interesting to me, if you study the stories of the post, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, that often the disciples didn't recognize Jesus. Jesus comes to Mary Magdalene in the tomb. She doesn't recognize him. Here are the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus joins them, walks alongside them, talks with them for hours, and it says they didn't recognize him. Here is Jesus coming to the disciples on the thing they fear the most in the darkest hour of the night, and they think he's a ghost. They don't recognize him until he spoke. Until he spoke. And then they say, you know what? We recognize that voice. Take courage. It is, that's Jesus out there. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am thy God. Let me tell you, in the darkest hour of the night, Jesus will come to you. But sometimes we won't recognize him. We won't recognize his voice. And we won't know it's him until we have learned how to recognize the voice of Jesus speaking to us. We've, turned, we've learned to recognize him speaking to us often through his word. I don't know how many times in a crisis that we've been through in Sri Lanka, God has given us just exactly the word that we need for that moment. I could give you example after example. Sometimes God speaks to us through the circumstances that we're in. In some way, God speaks to him and makes his presence felt. And all I can, know, all I can tell you this morning is, is that we need to learn how to recognize his voice. We need to learn how to recognize his fingerprints on, on, on what he's doing for us. And often, if we're not careful, we will miss it. The disciples almost missed it. But let's not forget this morning. He brought me here, anchor number one. Anchor number two, he's praying for me. Anchor number three, he will come to me. On the very thing I fear the most, the darkest hour of the night, we need to learn how to recognize his voice, his presence in the middle of the storm. Anchor number four, here's a good one. He will help me grow. He will help me to grow. Verse uh, verse. Um, uh, 20, uh, 20, 26, the disciples saw him. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus said, take courage in his eye. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you walking on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. About this time in the story, Peter gets into the act. He usually does in some way or another. Now, I think that we who are preachers one day are going to apologize to Peter for all the nasty things we've said about him during our sermons, okay? Because, you know, Peter's one of those guys, we love to pick on him since he's not around, it's a safe bet. And, uh, and uh, you know, we criticize him, he's rash, he's impulsive, he's blustering, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. And, I, you know, the fact is that Peter was a great man. 
And I think, I think we will be apologizing to him someday. Peter was a great man. Recall the time in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first met Peter and enrolled Peter in his institute for discipleship, okay? Uh, Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee and he finds Peter there by the, by the, uh, the, uh, the seaside mending his fishing nets after a fruitless night of fishing. Now, let me tell you, if that had been me, if I had spent a whole night with my nets and I didn't, didn't catch anything, I wouldn't be mending my nets. I'd be selling my nets, okay? Um, but, but Peter was different from me. I fished for a vacation. Peter fished for a vocation. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus picked disciples to be his first, uh, picked fishermen to be his first uh, disciples was because he knew fishermen are, are people who persevere. They don't give up so easily. They don't give up after a night of fruitless fishing. They keep at it. And so Jesus enlists Peter in his school of faith, in his school of discipleship, and, and he starts him right away on lesson number one, right there as Peter's mending his nets. Uh, there's a crowd that's gathering. They want to hear Jesus teach and preach. And so uh, Jesus is looking around for a good place to do that where everybody can hear him. They didn't have mics in those days. And so he, uh, he looks at Peter's boat and he says, you know, your, Peter, your boat would be a great place for me to teach this crowd from. So thrust out a little bit, give me your boat. Thrust out and give me your boat. So Peter does. And uh, Jesus uses, uses Peter's boat. It's his sort of preaching platform. And he's able to minister to this crowd and, and to bless them with his, with his teaching. Uh, and, and Jesus finishes up, and uh, then he says, you know, Peter, let's, let's go out for a little boat ride here. You, 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 you already thrust out and gave me your boat. Now, launch out into the deep and give me your nets. Okay? Launch out into the deep and give, give me your nets, and let's go fishing. I can imagine Peter in his mind thinking, you know, this guy's a carpenter from Nazareth. You know, I'm the fisherman here. You know, I'm the one who knows fishing. Uh, you know, Lord, we fished all night, and we didn't catch a thing, but, you know... Whatever you say, you know, you're the rabbi here, uh, so let's go fishing. And we know the rest of the story, right? They went out of the boat. Peter, Jesus says, throw your nets on this side. Peter throws his nets out there, and they catch so many fish that the nets start breaking. So many fish, they actually have to hail their buddies, James and John, to bring their boat over, throw their nets in to help haul in this massive, flipping, flapping, massive uh, fish that they've, that they've caught. And it's an, amazing, uh, it's an amazing miracle. And when they get back to the shore, I, this is a mark of Peter's greatness. You know, if that had been me, I would have been you know, going to the nearest Christian radio station and talking about this wonderful fishing trip that I'd done, you know, and I'd, you know, this miracle. Peter doesn't do that. They get back to the shore, and Peter looks at Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, for I'm a, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinner. A mark of Peter's greatness. He recognizes this has nothing to do with Peter. This has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And Peter recognizes that. And so thrust out a little bit, give me your boat. Launch out into the deep, give me your nets. Now, Peter, uh, uh, give me, you gave me the boats, you gave me the nets, now give me the man. I will make you fishers of men. You're going to catch fish like you've never done before, human fish. And I'm, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Lesson number one, Peter's growing in his faith. Lesson number two, um, uh, in Luke chapter 8, it's another, it's another trip out with, with the disciples unto the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus says, okay, now you've learned, you learned how to trust me initially in Luke chapter 5, 
um, on a calm sea in the daytime when I'm with you. That's Luke chapter 5. But of course, you know, that lots of people can learn that. That's kind of grade school level faith. Okay, let's up the ante. Let's move to level number 2, Luke chapter 8. They're in the boat together again. Uh, but this time, it's in the middle of a pretty bad storm, okay? So, the, you know, the, the, the ante is upped here a little bit. And Jesus is in the boat, but guess what he's doing? You think Jesus snored when he slept? Why not? I mean, he was human as we are. So he's there in the, he's there in the front of the boat, and he's tired, and he's fast asleep, and he's, and he's snoring. And the storm is getting worse and worse. The disciples panic. They, they, they crash the exam. They fail the, the test of faith. And they get panicky, and they wake up Jesus. Don't you care that we're sinking? And Jesus, you, know, you little faith, you know, why don't you trust me uh, that, that, we can, that I can see you through this thing, even if I'm asleep? So clearly... Peter's faith has some growing to do. So he's, you know, he's in the school. He's, he's learning step by step. So that's Luke chapter 8. Uh, Matthew 14, graduate level. Now, okay, we move from grade school to high school to graduate level faith here in, in this story here. This time, it's not daytime. It's nighttime, and this is a real stormy sea. This is one of the worst they've ever had before, and this time Jesus isn't even there. And this is one of the worst storms that they've had yet. And now it is the darkest hour of the night. It's that 4 a.m. time when everything seems to come together in the worst possible way. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water, and he calls out to them not to be afraid, and it clicks in Peter's mind. He remembers lesson number one, Luke chapter five, lesson number two, Luke chapter eight. He's growing, and so he calls out, Lord, if it is you... Bid me to come to you on the water. And I can imagine Thomas and James saying, Oh, brother, this Peter, crazy. And, but you know, I admire that kind of faith. I, I wish that I had the guts that Peter had to do that sort of thing. I, I wish we had more of it in our churches. Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And so the Lord says, in effect, Peter, well, we had the lessons with the boat. Let's try them without the boat. And, uh, and the Lord says, come. And Peter walked on the water on the basis of one word from Jesus. Don't you admire that kind of faith? You're going to be apologizing to Peter too someday, I suspect. And Peter walks on the water on the basis of one word from Jesus. And you say, well, he sank, didn't he? Don't we all? Don't we all go through a crisis of faith in our lives? We're facing a severe challenge to our faith, and we take our eyes off the Lord, and, and, and we sink? We all do that at some point. I suspect that part of the problem for Peter was, was that the rest of the crew back in the boat weren't exactly encouraging him. He gets out there, his eyes are fixed on Jesus. Thomas over here says, oh, look out, Peter, there's a big one rolling in on your right over there, look out. And then, you know, James over here, oh, there's another one coming on the left here, look out. And so Peter starts looking, like he takes his eyes off the Lord, he puts them on the waves, and he begins to sink. Haven't you been there? We all have. He begins to sink. And, and, but notice again, something very gracious about Peter. You might have missed this. Peter knew that he was sinking. There are hundreds of thousands of Christians in America who are sinking, but they don't know it. 
They can't admit it. Peter knew that he was sinking, and he reaches out uh, to the only person that he knows can help him. And he says, help. He prays the shortest prayer in the Bible. Three words. Lord, save me. Well, all I can say is it better be short, because he's going under, right? Any more than that, it's going to be a very bubbly submarine prayer. Lord, and he's down. You know, Got to make it short. Three-word prayer. Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand, and he brings Peter up, and they walk together back to the boat. And that night, Peter grew in his faith. That's what I'm praying for the church in Sri Lanka. I'm praying that through this storm, it won't just be something that God gets them through, but that God will help the church to grow. We have never had the opportunity to reach into the Muslim community that we have now. We have an opportunity to grow in our evangelism and in our outreach that we've never had before. And I'm praying that God will use the storm to help the Sri Lankan church to grow and us to grow, and our little church in Candy to grow. And I'm praying that the storms that God allows into your life, that you will allow them to help you to grow in your faith and your confidence in Jesus. Anchor number one, he brought me here. Anchor number two, he's praying for me. Anchor number three, he will come to me. Anchor number four, he will help me to grow. Anchor number five, and don't I love this, he will see me through. He will see me through. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. John's gospel, his account says, immediately they were on the land. We say, well, they should have known. Jesus had told them, hadn't he, that he would meet them at Bethsaida on the other side. Why didn't, why did they get in all this panic? Well, you know, again, we do the same thing, don't we? Uh, You know, the storms blow in. Financial storms, physical storms, spiritual storms, marital storms, you name it. Sometimes it seems as if every demon in hell has been turned loose on us. And, and uh, we begin to lose. And we, and, and, and we need to remember at that time, he will see me through. He will see me through. When I was a boy growing up in Sri Lanka, my parents were into these, these uh, navigator memory verse packs. Some of you old-timers will, will remember those from those days. Little packs of verses, and we would, you know, we would, as a family, we would try to memorize these verses. And one of the very first verses that I ever memorized as a kid, and I've never forgotten it, it was one of these navigator pack verses, was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Throw it up there on the screen for us. There is no trial that has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, listen to this, but will with the trial make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. A marvelous verse for a storm. God knows your limits and he will make a way, he will give you endurance and he will, at the right time, he will make a way for you out of the storm. Now, I don't know how God will do that for you. God has a a whole variety of ways of doing that. He sends an angel to Peter in prison to release him. He sends to Stephen a martyr's death to release him. I don't know how God will take you through the storm, but I know that he will. He will see me through. Peter knew this from experience. And later on when he wrote in his first epistle, 1 Peter 2.9, he says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. Who knew that better than Peter? And it's true for us as, as, as much as, as it is for Peter. 
Uh, and, and notice the, the, the response of the disciples when Jesus got back into the boat. I love this in verse 33. It says when, when they, they got back into the boat, it says the disciples worshipped him. They worshipped him. That, friends, that is a mark of a true spiritual experience. Again, if it had been me, you know, I'd be running down to the Christian radio station saying, you know, I'm the guy who walked on the water. I'm going to write my book. You know, I'm going to put, get it out there in Christian media. No, no, no. When you've been through the storm with Jesus and he has seen you through, you want to worship him. You want to worship him. That's why God allows storms into our lives. Not so that at the end of the storm, we can breathe this sigh of relief and say, thank God that's over with and we can check that one off the list. No. God brings storms into our lives so that when we, come, when we look at him, we can say to him at the end, stormy wind fulfilling thy word. Stormy wind fulfilling thy word. A lovely chorus, a lovely song that we have learned over the years to sing uh, that we want to close with this morning. The words go this way, and maybe you know the song. When the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. We're learning that in Sri Lanka these days. You are king over the flood. I will be still and know that you are God. Do you know the song? We're going to sing it here in just a minute or two. I will be still and know you are God. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch God's methods, watch God's ways. How he ruthlessly perfects. Did you get that? How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which God only understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How God bends yet never breaks when our good he undertakes, how God uses whom he chooses and with his power infuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God knows what he's about. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we sail through the storms, we ask that you would reassure us of your calling on our lives. Help us to know that we are in your will and that in the storm you have brought us here. We thank you that this morning already you have been praying in the throne room of God the Father for the church in Sri Lanka. You are praying for us here at Trinity this morning in Walla Walla. You've been praying for us, Lord, and we, we thank you for that. We thank you that, Lord, you will come to us in the darkest hour of the night, walking on the very things that we fear the most. We thank you that in your sovereign love and will, you will bring us out. That we may worship you and we may testify of your goodness and your glory to those around us. May that be our story here in Sri Lanka, wherever you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.